this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast if the covid-19 pandemic turned our world upside down russia's invasion of ukraine has added to the economic gloom we thought it apt to now take a quick snapshot of major economies undergoing stress and of places where policy action is going against the grain we also wanted to take a peek into nations that are doing rather well when the rest of the world is surrounded by uncertainty we took a peek of the us's interest rate actions the uk's fiscal and currency woes turkey's unbridled inflation and counterintuitive interest rate moves the blossoming of vietnam's economy in a world full of economic stagnation with indonesia close on its heels and insistence by japan's central bank that it won't raise rates given that it has the lowest inflation rates among major economies rohit azad who teaches economics at jnu joins us to share his views with us on these global trends in india have you know sort of dealt with this delicate balance for a long long time and high inflation rates are probably new for the us uh, i just wanted your view uh, as to whether you feel Uh, that they're going down the right path. Any consequences to this approach for themselves, and of course, the rest of the world. So, I would like to respond in two different parts. Number one is one needs to understand the cause of this uh, inflation, in particular, because unless you understand why it is being caused, if you have a policy which addresses something else completely, it may just misfire, as many people are uh, are saying. And I'll come back to that. So, let me first discuss. what the data shows what even the literature including from within the imf i mean they their uh, recent uh, economic outlook in which uh, one of the chapters is on inflation itself uh, throws light on what they understand as the cause of inflation and it's quite clear at least for the us i mean things vary across countries but for the us in particular as far as inflation is concerned it is not coming from wages at all in fact the pass through uh, they themselves say is uh, not there at all so it's not because of a rise in wages that uh, you have a rise in inflation of course nominal wages follow when the inflation rises so it's more like a uh, an, an an effect of inflation rather than a cause of inflation so much so that the real wages uh, have actually either stagnated or are falling so obviously the uh, source of inflation is not coming from the working class of the united states so any policy which uh, targets them let's say you know uh, inflation targeting is essentially trying to control the uh, employment in the economy you increase the unemployment in the economy in the process that brings the wages down and that's how you would actually be controlling inflation the traditional let's say macroeconomic uh, monetary policy response that you would have but if the source itself is not that then you would not be able to control it and hence then the uh, next uh, question that comes up is what then is the cause of inflation and the data shows that this is an unprecedented uh, shock that the global economy has faced i mean everybody knows about it we've never had this kind of a supply shock ever except during uh, war situations now you have had a lockdown pretty much for uh, the entire period of the pandemic in some phases or the other in some countries still continuing so if you have that kind of a supply shock it is obvious that when the economy opens up when there's pent up demand there will be a mismatch between demand and supply now if this mismatch which is the correct reason for why you have inflation then controlling demand per se 
is not what would, uh, or at least even if it does affect inflation, which I'll come to, it is going to be a much more prolonged and protracted process through which you would be bringing the inflation. It's like supply got constrained. Uh, there were bottlenecks in global chains. And uh, that is what has primarily resulted uh, in inflation, apart from other factors. I'm not saying this is the only factor. In the case of US, oil is not so important a factor, but that is also a, a, a factor. Now, both of these are essentially supply side uh, factors as far as inflation is concerned. Inflation targeting on monetary policy is essentially a demand side driven policy because it brings the demand down. And by bringing the demand down, if one understands inflation coming from that source, then you would be able to, and that's what let's say theory says that you will be able to control inflation. But as I've just said, neither are the wages in the reason for why there has been inflation in the United States, nor does it reflect as if there is an excessive demand. It's the supply side, which is a problem. You know, you can have a mismatch because of higher demand with supply not pace, uh, keeping pace or the fact that supply itself is constrained in the first place. So even a minor increase in demand can have uh, an effect of inflation. So the point is, the real cause is not a, a demand-driven situation. In fact, if anything, the economies are not growing. Then what happens if you do an inflation targeting of this kind? Uh, you essentially increase the interest rate. And let's just focus on the U.S. itself. The implication that it has for economies outside the U.S. is, is phenomenal. And that's why the opposition that is coming from the academic circles uh, outside of the U.S. as well. But let's just focus on the U.S. itself. When you increase the interest rate, you're essentially imposing or inflicting a recession on your economy or a slowdown in your economy, if not a recession. Now, that slowdown essentially is uh, to, to bring down the bargaining power of your own working class, which is how you expect the inflation to actually come down. The other argument that the uh, Fed is making is that this also influences the inflationary expectations. Now, what does that mean? It essentially means that if I expect inflation to stay, then I will be negotiating for a nominal wage, which at least compensates for that. The point is that inflation expectation is coming from the past, inflation having taken place for some reason, and that is actually percolating down into higher inflationary expectation. A monetary policy on its own cannot necessarily control inflation in a situation where you've had inflation in the past. So essentially, you would have to continue this policy for so long that finally the inflation expectations come. In fact, the IMF itself says that it has to be a protracted and an aggressive response of monetary uh, authorities to control inflation, which I think is completely misplaced uh, as far as controlling inflation is concerned. Then comes the question, what do we do? Do we just sit idle if we uh, know this is not going to work? What do we do? And there are ways in which uh, the response in this kind of a situation, that's why I say it's, it's unprecedented. It's not the 1970s. It is not the inflation that you would usually find. This is almost comparable to a warlike situation because of the disruption of supply. So there are ways in which you can control both inflationary expectation and in process inflation itself. One of the uh, ways is basically imposing price control still such time when this mismatch is taken care of. If you do that, then you're neither inflicting recession on your economy, nor are you imposing the burden of adjustment on a class which is not even responsible for inflation in the first place. Why should the workers be at the receiving end of a problem which they have not contributed to creating? And yet, 
act as, uh, I mean, basically carrying the cross for uh, an inflationary problem. Uh, in a price control situation, essentially the burden of adjustment in that short period while this mismatch takes place would fall on the farms, of course. But then uh, the adjustment has to take place not at the cost of the class, which has already lost so much. So that is one of the ways in which you could do it, which would have positive um, or at least not negative effects on, let's say, the global south or including countries outside of the United States. Because inflation targeting in the U.S. means every financial, um, now every central bank would have to uh, follow through uh, an inflation targeting uh, framework effectively, even if the, they themselves may not believe in it, because you have to control your finances flowing out. Like... Uh... The U.S. has said in the past, it's our currency, but your problem to the rest of the world. So that probably succinctly captures what we're all facing now. So can you elaborate a bit on that when you said, you know, why should the workers uh, bear the cross for something that they did not trigger? So what you're saying is, you know, the right hikes, uh, rate hikes have to happen, but not, uh, you know, temporarily or, you know, uh, in, a, in a short period of time, but let it be less aggressive, but over a period of time or aggressive and over a period of time. What is your, sorry, I didn't catch that nuance. I would say neither. I don't think the rate hike is actually going to control inflation. And if at all it does, it will come at a huge cost, which is not required. Uh, you could do it through different ways where you do not require any of this. And 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 people like, the, I mean, uh, UN itself has recommended that you do it in a different manner because this is inflicting recession, not just on your own, your own, own economy, but also across. Okay. So if we leave the US and move eastwards, so as it is the currency exchange rate, uh, the pound has fared pretty poorly against uh, the dollar. And they've added to their own problems with their statements on on the fiscal front going back and forth. Uh, and one wonders why this was so, if this was not uh, thought through. Initially, they talked about uh, certain uh, graded uh, increase in tax rates and the top slab for wealth tax and so on and so forth. And then they went back on that. And then there were protests and the government has said, no, uh, we'll make a U-turn. So just too many confusing uh, signals there. What would you say about the UK economy itself before their fiscal statement became such a source of confusion over the past 10 days, if you were to look at the UK economy prior to that? I think if if one looks at the, the outlook for the economic outlook for the UK, uh, things are anyway pretty bad. Uh, you know, I mean, if I can just quote some numbers, uh, the projected rate of growth uh, in the UK is about 3.7% in 2022. And for 2023, it's 1.2. So it's a huge decline, a one-third, basically two-thirds slashing of the growth rate that the IMF itself is projecting. Now, this is because of multiple reasons. One is that because, uh, in fact, in inflation targeting would have to follow in the US as well, and slowdown is the way they are responding. They would have to respond to, uh, to control inflation. But there's another component that uh, countries, I mean, European countries in particular are facing, which is basically inflation coming aggressively from uh, the side of rise in oil and natural gas prices because of their dependence on uh, on Russia and the Ukraine-Russia war. So there is that geopolitics, which is far more critical for countries, uh, the European countries than, let's say, uh, for the United States. But as far as the UK in specific is concerned, apart from this inflation and low growth problems that they are faced uh, with, I think there is also a 
policy credibility issue. Number one, the way Brexit itself was handled uh, for that economy. So the credibility of the government of what they see the economy to be uh, in the next uh, few years is not something which is clear to international finance. And, and this came at the back of that. I mean, announcement of uh, bizarre tax cuts for a class which is actually uh, benefited, if at all, from this pandemic. So whether you call it fiscal imprudence or not, but definitely politically uh, something which did not uh, have much substance, uh, which was announced without any thought. And again, with the assumption that to recover the economy or to, or to bring about a recovery in the economy, you basically need to give uh, tax cuts to the uh, to the rich, something that in India also we've been doing and yet not seen recovery. And the reason is very simple. Tax cuts don't bring about recovery. Tax cuts only give incentives to the capitalist or give them gives them cash, but they may not invest and they may not invest for a simple reason that uh, their existing uh, factories themselves may not be running uh, at capacity. And for them, it doesn't make sense to expand capacity when the demand itself is low. To top it all, you have a slowdown expected. So with these uh, kinds of uh, reckless policies, you're not going to necessarily bring about a recovery in the economy. Hence, the financial markets responded and they responded with scare in the gilt market, uh, basically selling off uh, the gilt, which led to a fall in its price. Uh, it's another matter that, I mean, not another matter. In fact, the central bank had to intervene to, to stop this and said that, uh, you know, it's like a thing on tap. We are going to buy. Don't worry. We are as much to whatever extent possible. So it was a signaling which had to be given, given by the central bank to control this free fall. It could have been and, and uh, quite likely a lemon uh, moment for uh, the UK. And I think this is all kind of clubbed. I mean, Brexit an irresponsible, without uh, ill-thought policy, uh, and, and uh, then what followed. Okay. So at least um, if I look for patterns as a student of economics, textbook style, your inflation goes up, your first line of defense is probably the interest rates and so on and so forth. So the UK and US have um, behaved to type. Uh, but if I look at Turkey, uh, if I move eastwards, that has been confounding, right? Uh, record inflation, and I don't think uh, I've seen these percentages for any country in very recent times. Some yesterday or day before they reported some 83% inflation rates, and the government is saying we'll go ahead and still go, you know, move ahead with uh, interest rate cuts rather than increase interest rate increments. So, is that just poor economics, or is there something in that economy that is not obvious to us, where they're saying no, this is what needs to be done? But I'll be very frank, I have not looked at Turkey in particular, uh, but it is likely, and that is broadly what is being said about Europe, that many countries, uh, their, their inflation is essentially coming primarily from the cost side. Uh, and in this particular case, from gas and uh, oil dependence. And most of these countries are uh, excessively dependent on Russia uh, for uh, their oil reserves. Uh, so any stoppage from there and for a small economy, any stoppage from a very important resource, which is a necessary commodity for you, would have a dramatic effect, especially if your dependence is very high. Uh, so that could possibly be the reason. Now, in such a context, whether you increase the interest rate or decrease the interest rate, that cannot control. It's like India, you know, I mean, our inflation to a large extent is imported. Whatever you do to your interest rates is at best going to control demand within your economy. 
that has no effect on the oil prices that the oil shakes or Putin that you buy oil from. What has your interest rate got to do with the price that Putin charges from you? So it's completely misplaced. Unfortunately, that's textbook macroeconomics and the way it is taught, it is made into uh, common sense. I mean, you ask anybody and the immediate response uh, on inflation is, you know, excessive liquidity, uh, central banks should increase the interest rates. Uh, it's a far more complex uh, process than that. Uh, and that's why it is important to go beyond monetary policy alone as a response. And uh, just one quick thing, uh, you know, a similar, a, a similar experience was faced in the 1970s. I mean, this kind of an inflationary situation ex uh, you know, across the board was faced in the, in the famous oil crisis of the 1970s. And economies responded aggressively through uh, monetary policy, uh, you know, in uh, rate increases. And we know what it resulted in. It resulted in a prolonged recession uh, or a slowdown compared to the golden age in the first world countries. The fact that inflation was controlled was not because of that. The fact that in, uh, inflation was controlled because of lower wage costs across the board. It's the globalization which, uh, which controlled inflation, not so much as monetary policy. So there is a reversal of globalization with trade wars that is taking place. And perhaps that may fuel inflation more uh, than uh, other factors. And... Uh... You know, I read somewhere that um, there are some bright spots in the global economy, even if they're just glimmers of hope rather than, you know, streaks of light. Um, I was looking at uh, Vietnam and Indonesia. Very interesting on all counts. When we look at, um, you know, an economy, we the first three numbers that come to mind are the GDP growth rates, the inflation rates and the currency exchange. On several of these counts, Vietnam seems to have done well. Uh, the vaccination rates are high their ability to attract tourism into the country, hence, has been high. And inflation hasn't been run away, as in the case of some Western economies. Uh, what is helping is the China plus one policy that has helped Vietnam, because Vietnam seems and Philippines seem to have been the two countries that got a lot of uh, mind space attention when we talked about China plus one, the companies wanting to de-risk away from China or in addition to China. What do you think has worked for Vietnam? I think multiple things. One definitely was their uh, planning on COVID management, without doubt, uh, in terms of uh, uh, not having uh, a universal policy of lockdown. So that's for their own domestic economy. They had controlled uh, lockdowns depending on where the spread was. So it was not a universal lockdown for the economy. So that uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, just a domestic uh, response to COVID was far better thought uh, than many other countries. But as you said, one of the important factors in the case of China has been this China One policy. I mean, if there is one country which you can say has benefited from this China One, Vietnam definitely tops it. And uh, it reflects, as you said, in the uh, growth rate projections also. So uh, across the board, uh, growth rates are going down in projections in more or less uh, every continent. But within Asia, whatever increase that one shows uh, in uh, the IMF outlook, it's essentially coming from these specific countries, Vietnam leading it, uh, essentially. And I think two things. One is simply the trade war, you know, which Trump started, uh, which had had an impact on uh, through direct trade barriers against China, so which made China also outsourced its own production to Vietnam. So kind of 
the Chinese companies going to Vietnam and Vietnam then exporting. So you kind of not a financial ground tripping, but, you know, relocating. So it has happened. Uh, I mean, if one looks at manufacturing companies moving away from China, they're still Chinese companies, but uh, essentially working from Vietnam. So that's one which I think has had an effect. But more importantly, Vietnam itself has seen as, a, as an opportunity to kind of uh, go global, to, to fit itself into the global value chain. Currently, infrastructurally, I think it's still uh, some way to go, but they are aggressively thinking uh, along these lines, seeing the, uh, the fact both of the trade uh, uh, barriers imposed by the U.S., and also the fact that the costs uh, were going up for cost of production was going up for China. Now, I have a slightly, I mean, I find this strategy of export-oriented growth at the cost of workers slightly problematic. I mean, the whole, uh, and this may control inflation, by the way, I mean, like it did in the 90s uh, when Chinese uh, wage costs kept the prices low. But what does it do? It essentially puts the burden of uh, inflationary adjustment uh, on the working class across the globe. That is exactly what happened as the post-1970s uh, crisis. Chinese workers took the burden, the, the you know, carried the cross, so to speak, uh, for inflation in particular. And Vietnam seems to be moving in that direction. Now, it may, I mean, and it will, uh, of course, lead to higher growth rates. Uh, it will lead to employment. So you can say that, okay, fine. Uh, after all, employment is rising. So what if wages are, uh, are uh, you know, or wage shares are falling? The question is, you're essentially implementing a growth strategy, which is, you know, mutually exclusive. You can either have a domestic demand driven growth strategy in such a situation or an export-oriented growth strategy. Now, for a small country, it may make sense uh, because even if the global market uh, is not expanding, a small share in that is good enough for you to, to kind of uh, grow. But if the global economy itself slows down, then the likelihood of this happening for a larger number of countries to have an export-oriented growth is extremely limited. So not everybody can follow, let's say, the Vietnamese model because you need to have that global demand. If US is going into a slowdown, if Europe is going into a slowdown, plus inflationary uh, pressures, then who do you sell to? And where are you going to get that uh, market from? But yes, for Vietnam, in the interim, it's helping because uh, there, is, there is a movement away from China to some extent, yes. Okay. And if we quickly shift our focus to Indonesia, you know, Indonesia seems to have done well. I just saw an ADB report, Asian Development Bank, that talks about uh, its own updates from April to September. Actually talking about uh, the growth forecast seems to have been improved, revised upwards. So there is good growth there. Commodity prices, uh, though they spurred inflation internally, they seem to have helped uh, in exports as well. So you know, I understand what you said for, for Vietnam is it's positioned well, at least you know, in the short term. And, you know, somebody cannot come overnight and replicate the success story of Vietnam or whatever worked for Vietnam need not work for everybody else. So Indonesia also happened, there's a happenstance uh, factor happening for Indonesia because of the strength in commodity exports that it has. So I think uh, it, particularly for Indonesia, uh, I mean, apart from the fact that they are also trying to, uh, I mean, China plus one strategy is uh, a strategy which many countries, including Indonesia, 
uh, are trying in terms of not just having a primary commodity uh, driven growth, but also industry, you know, location of industries in their own economy. But for Indonesia, there's that additional advantage. If, a, if you are a commodity exporter and if the prices go up, then obviously during the phase when this is happening, you would actually be gaining from it. I'm not saying that's the only reason for why this is happening. Of course, when the commodity prices uh, start coming down, uh, you know, the terms of trade would move against them and they would be losing on that count. But if they kind of uh, substitute that with uh, an industrial growth, then maybe on the balance, they may still be able to weather that storm, if at all, the commodity prices uh, start coming down. Uh, so I think a combination of the two, perhaps for Indonesia in, in this instance, there may be other issues uh, also involved, but this is what came to my mind. So if I were to look at uh, Japan, you know, it has had its own share of uh, economic troubles starting in the early 1990s. And uh, some of its economic policies sort of helped it starting 2013 till before the pandemic struck all of us. It's interesting because, again, it seems counterintuitive to, te to textbook uh, economics where we are saying they will not raise interest rates, which are already in the negative region. Uh, but, you know, despite its quantitative uh, easing policy that it's had, inflation has not galloped. It's among the lowest in among the major economies. So I know growth has not been as, uh, you know, uh, fantastic as it could have been for as it did for the rest of the world when the rest of the world was growing in the past two decades. But uh, the fact that it's been able to control inflation and its insistence, government insistence that we will not raise rates. So it seems counterintuitive to me. So what do you think is working on that front for Japan? Well, Japan, I think to a large extent, as you yourself said, has uh, one of the important factors have been a prolonged, you know, I mean, what is called the lost decades. So it's for them, it's been a depressed economy for, for very long. Uh, so the kind of recovery leading to inflation, I mean, at least from the demand side, would require a recovery of a different, uh, would have required a recovery of a different kind. I think, you know, two decades of uh, close to zero growth, uh, I mean, zero in the sense that uh, on the whole, it has been a stagnating economy. For that economy, a demand-driven inflation would not necessarily have taken place or the likelihood would have been uh, far uh, lower. Now, where do they go from here? Their whole uh, attempt has been to uh, drive, I mean, to, to drive through, uh, drive growth through negative interest rates. You know, I mean, that's been their strategy. Keep the nominal rate of interest zero. Uh, if there is inflation in the economy, the net rate of interest is negative, And that is what is going to propel the economy to growth. I mean, people like Paul Krugman also have written about it, recommending, and many economists have. But the point is they've tried it for so long. It has not worked. So the question is, what would work? And I think this de excessive dependence on monetary policy, both for growth and for controlling inflation, is misplaced. I mean, uh, Keynes was somebody who wrote extensively about it, that you're putting all your eggs in one basket, a basket which actually may not even deliver. So you need to think in terms of, uh, of policies which directly intervene, in particular in Japan, uh, it has to be the state which has to drive it, whether through industrial policy or uh, encourage private capital and, and uh, influence fiscal policy. So it has to be a kickstart uh, from the state side. Uh, monetary policy is not that kickstart. I may come across as a, an anti-monetary policy uh, or whatever you may call uh, a monetary policy hawk. But I think that it is an important thing because everything in 
economics today, uh, whether in theory or in policy, is obsessed. Everybody seems to be obsessed with it's that one wand which is going to work for everything. It's monetary policy. And uh, unfortunately, monetary policy does not have solution uh, and definitely not in the current context uh, on many of these problems. And hence, we need to think uh, more broadly and perhaps go back to macroeconomic basics, uh, which were at one point in time what macroeconomics used to be when we were fighting the Great Depression. Uh, and those th that economics hasn't changed. I mean, that economics is what needs to be uh, revived, perhaps. So if we move back from country-specific uh, comments, we just have a few more minutes to go for this uh, conversation. And you talked about uh, the China plus one policy. You know, Vietnam and Philippines were names that struck me, but you're saying that even Indonesia may have benefited at least from companies considering it as one of the options. India has tried, uh, you know, we thought it was, the government was pretty cognizant of an opportunity, say, pre-pandemic, when it tried to come in with what it saw as a benign uh, tax regime and tried to compete with the likes of Vietnam. Um, but likely that the, you know, the time that Vietnam had spent in growing its export uh, strategy probably, you know, stood in good stead for that country. But even otherwise, in the last two, three years, I understand that the pandemic has sort of, you know, skewed expectations and behaviors of companies and such like. Uh, but even given that, the kind of time that we have spent after that, and in fact, recently we had the uh, finance minister talking to domestic companies saying, hey, why are you like... Uh, you know, you, you're like Hanuman, you need to be reminded of your own strength, but you've not invested. You talk to me about PLI, we did PLI. You talk to me about tax rates, we did tax rates, but you're not, uh, you know, uh, reacting to that. And I'm sure the same or, uh, you know, added concerns may be there on part of uh, global investors. So China plus one strategy, do you see India benefiting at all? Because we've spoken to, for example, automobile companies. Uh, they say, yeah, you're speaking to clients, they're considering it, but the considering has been a standard story for the last two, three years. Anything that you see uh, on the ground that is changing for the better for India? I think uh, uh, in terms of uh, a China plus one strategy or uh, the fact, I mean, this whole Hanuman comment, I think for uh, the, I mean, we can look at it at two different levels. Let's say that we think of the old uh, framework of uh, like the Indian economy grew earlier, it was more or less a domestic market driven growth in the 2000s. So let's say one is trying to revive that through these uh, policies, PLIs or otherwise. And the problem is that that policy will only work if the, if the firms see that their investments are going to give them returns. Unfortunately, currently, most of the companies data shows are sitting uh, pretty on cash they're not investing. And the reason why they're not investing is that the domestic demand itself has not taken off and, you know, despite some revival in demand. So it's not good enough for them to be making, it doesn't make economic sense for them to be investing on their own. Then comes the question, maybe then external demand. Now, external demand is not something which, you know, which, which just falls from heaven. You need to have an industrial policy, a well thought out policy where you need synchronization between where do you fit in that value chain. It's not something that you announce that, okay, uh, you know, this is Amrit Kal and suddenly Amrit Kal will unleash growth in your economy. It doesn't work like that. We don't have an industrial policy. If we want to really do make in India, if that is our, uh, let's say, strategy, then one needs to see it in terms of a well-thought-out industrial policy, which does this. Merely making statements uh, is not going to deliver. Yeah, you talked about the industrial policy, uh, which you feel is absent as far as India is concerned. 
that would attract investments can you elaborate on that so i think uh, with the absence of i mean this kind of a shift in your growth strategy actually requires a solid planning uh, unfortunately we don't have the planning commission anymore so you have a niti aayog which keeps recommending this and that but there's no well thought out policy for example you know you want to uh, become the uh, an export hub or whatever have you at the same time you also want to have trade barriers so you know it's a contradictory policy if you want to really be export oriented then you will also have to accept imports i mean you can't have double standards so if you create a trade barrier in the name of giving protection to adani to create adani or amani whoever uh, create uh, their uh, own expertise you will not be able to export it because uh, the the competitors that you have outside will not uh, respond without trade barriers so it's like the usual uh, old fashioned uh, trade barrier you can't uh, have an export driven growth strategy with barriers now comes the question what what happens if we actually think in terms of a more uh, free trade uh, regime which requires you to have the expertise and and the expertise where you can actually enter because you have you have not developed the industrial base which matches you're not let's say china china's capacity to to produce uh, manufactured goods developed over time and it didn't happen just like that it it was a well thought out growth strategy i think unfortunately we do not have that kind of a strategy and that strategy when i said industrial policy it requires it one needs to see where india's advantage could be in that global value chain which commodities where could be fit in into that global scale because it's true that if china is getting affected by this whole uh, uh, geopolitical uh, situation then india could have gained from it uh, but the question is that gaining is i mean that gain cannot would not happen on its own you need to fit into that whole uh, scheme of things which uh, is where policy is required and i think the budget's uh, announcement about infrastructure development or committing to those are not really the kind uh, i mean it's good there's nothing wrong with infrastructure uh, development uh, strategies uh, and and fiscal policy driven towards that there's nothing wrong per se with that especially if you deliver uh, but it will only have a, a only this much effect on the overall business uh, situation so i think uh, a planning commission which understood this which could have implemented uh, this uh, make in india in a genuine manner plus an infrastructure you know fiscal policy driven uh, combination of the two and not just blindly saying we are going to spend this much money uh, on infrastructure which would help so a more well thought out strategy it seems more like a, you know throwing up slogans kind of an approach which is not really helpful and that's why india has so far at least not really gained from that even though it was made out to be one of the countries which could gain but that was only because it's a large country and people assumed with lower labor uh, labor costs we would also be able to substitute and fit into that but it's not so easy excellent thank you so much you've given us a quick snapshot of uh, what's happening across the world and of course the china plus one strategy that seems to be uh, uh, positively impacting some some countries but not uh, adequately for india thank you so much i know that you have a hard stop so really appreciate your being with us today rohit thank you thanks a lot bharat in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher 
and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.